You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Frank White grew up in the shadows of Old Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, a multi-sport athlete. He excelled mostly in baseball. He's one of three former Royals Academy prospects to make the major leagues, and he did so with his hometown team. He spent his entire 18-year career with the Royals, one of 180 players entering this season in MLB history to play for at least 10 seasons, all with one team. After his playing career ended, he became a coach and a broadcaster. He's still involved in the game at age 71 as he's the first base coach of the recently crowned American Association champions, the Kansas City Monarchs. While it might be a little cliche to call Kauffman Stadium the home of the Royals for the past 49 seasons, the house that Frank White built, it wouldn't be incorrect as he was part of the construction crew that helped build the complex. And he's one of two former Royals players, George Brett being the other, to have his number retired by the team. Frank, welcome to Sports Connections. Well, thank you, David. Good, good to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been. I think the last time we saw each other, well, you, your company was working on my mom's roof. So it, <laughs> it has has been a while. We've known each other probably cool. 25 years now. Yes. All right. First of all, congratulations on winning another championship, this one with the Monarchs. We are just chatting before we started the recording about that. Just talk about your involvement with the Monarchs and, and you know how exciting it is to win another championship. Well, you, you know, David, when I left the Royals, uh, I really had uh, kind of a bad taste in my mouth for uh, baseball and, and, and the, the whole Royal situation. And, and Chris Brown, who was our clubhouse kid for the first time in 85 during the World Series, Chris was a general manager for the T-Bones. And Chris asked me to come over and, and work with them for a while. And, and so I started working. This. So this is my, actually my 10th year going over. Uh, I sort of working around my schedule. And, and so uh, the, the success that we had with the T-Bone in 18 was, was a lot of fun. But then this year, uh, with Mark Brandmeier coming in as a new owner, they, they're marketing the team as, as the Monarchs and, and getting the blessings of uh, – Bob Kendrick and the board of the Negro Baseball Museum. I, I think there's still a few people out there who aren't sure that this was the right move for them to make. But when they asked me, I said, well, the one thing you want to do is, is get your name out there. You, yeah. you want your name repeated over and over and over again. And you get to, you know what we got on the, on the pro side. But when you're talking about uh, minor league baseball, you're talking about going to a lot of cities, a lot of cities that that probably don't know who the Monarchs are. And mm-hmm. so to be able to see the name on the, uh, on the jerseys, to be able to hear the, uh, the, your, your announcer talk about the Monarchs all the time, tell stories, done the broadcast, uh, that helps. And then at home, like I say, uh, you, every time the guys come, go to the field every night, 50 nights, 50 home dates, you're saying, here comes the Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah. And then and on the, on the uh, scoreboard, you've got Buck O'Neill singing the, uh, take me out to the ball game in the seventh. Uh, you got uh, Bob Kendricks giving some baseball history uh, from the Negro Leagues. There's trivia. There's lots. So, I mean, I think that, that that really just enhanced it all. And one thing that I really noticed uh, by making the name switch is the diversity of the crowd uh, that came to the game and, and, and how much Monarch gear uh, they, were, they were wearing and, and how they came not, not just once, they came multiple times because uh, because it was just, it's just a fun place to watch baseball. Um, you talked a little bit about this. I was going to ask more later, but we might as well get into it now. Um, 
the the change of the name to the to the Negro Leagues, obviously being a black man yourself, the, the fact that it's uh, that it's celebrating the rich tradition of the Negro Leagues. You, you obviously like that idea. Why is that so important, not just the Kansas City Monarchs, but the Negro Leagues in general? You know, the name the Monarchs is synonymous, like the New York Yankees, you know, it is, it's, uh, it's the name that everybody knows. And every, it's a, it, it was a symbol of championships. Uh, and, and I think that uh, there's always that, that threat of, uh, of it not going as well as you think you want it to go. But I, I really felt confident that uh, from a notoriety standpoint, uh, from the standpoint that you're going to be reaching cities, cities that uh, don't know about the Monarch history, I really felt like it would be a great move uh, to make at the time because I think that it was just, just a refreshing uh, uh, way to look at it. And I think Mark uh, Brandmeier and his group, they had a great idea how they were going to market it. Uh, they took the, uh, they had a lot of pride in the name, they had a pride in the tradition. You know, the players, when they came, uh, they went, we went over to Monarch Square on 22nd in Brooklyn. I gave them a little bit of history because that's where they have some ex-Rawls players, ex-Chiefs players, and yeah. where both used to play in Old Municipal Stadium. That's where Old Municipal Stadium used to sit. So I gave them a lot of that history. And also they went down to the museum. Bob gave them a tour. And then throughout the year, I know the multiple times uh, players say, my folks are coming in town. Can we get tickets to the, uh, to the museum? And then uh, Bob would always uh, arrange for them to – not only go, but there's someone there to take the family through so they don't have to wander through by themselves. And if he's in town, he takes care of it. So, so I really think it was a, a, just a great, great uh, uh, situation to be. And multiple times throughout the year, uh, we'd have uh, the opposing team wear the uniform of the Homestead Grays. And, and so it was just marketed in so many uh, perfect ways. If you went to the stadium and you walked through the concourse, you see uh, Negro League players on the wall with their history. You see videos on the wall, and you can see uh, the history being repeated over and over and over again. And I, I think, I think that is what I like about it because everybody knows who the Monarchs are on on that on that high professional level. I think on the lower level, uh, I think that it really just brought uh, a, a big, uh, just a really a good sense of pride to everyone who put the uniform on. It's. I mean, it's so true that minor league baseball is all about marketing. Yes. You know? yes. I mean, that's 99% of, uh, of the game with minor league baseball is marketing your brand, marketing the game, uh, probably more important than the quality of play. Now, when the team plays well, like you guys did this year, that's better, but marketing and, and to, I mean, there's not a better guy to market baseball in this city than Bob Kendrick. So that was a, a perfect, a perfect partnership. Well, and then, you know, this is having Bob out there throughout the first pitch a few times. Uh, I had X of X major leaguers show up to uh, take part in some of the festivities. Uh, and I think having the, still, still having the Buffalo golf tournament, uh, a lot of athletes come in for that. And then they, everybody wants to see what's going on with the Monarchs uh, baseball team. Uh, George, uh, George came, George Brett came over to throw out the first pitch and he had a chance to go in the clubhouse and talk to the guys. And so they got a little bit of history that they probably never would have gotten any other way. And, and I, I think this is, um, you know, how you, you, you look at timing for everything. And I, I just, I, I just thought the timing was right. And even though they had that one day at Coughlin stadium where everybody wears the uniforms, but 
a lot of the things over there were kind of the same where the uniforms at the end of the year, uh, they were all being uh, auctioned for, uh, for to charity uh, to get my, to make to. So, so they just, a lot of the things are similar, but at the same time, uh, uh, it, it's very traditional uh, things that have gone on in the past and things that people are used to. And, and then they try to come up with a new twist every now and then. Yeah. I, I was actually there. Uh, become pretty good friends with Mark. And I was there for the game that George threw the first pitch to you. And I, it was, it was too close to that time. I didn't get a chance to come down and say hi to you or to say hi to, hi to George, but that was pretty cool to, to watch that. Yeah. I understand that was the first time you have played catch with him since <laughs> you retired. Is that correct? That is true. <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty yeah. impressive. That, that's something that us, Fans in Kansas City can really enjoy. Yeah, once you once you take the uniform off, David, uh, they don't have any need for you to go on the field and play catch anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about you wearing the uniform. Uh, you were a multi multi sports star at Lincoln Prep. What else did, were you really good at besides baseball? Uh, I thought I was a fair football player. Uh, I was a better Sandlot football player than I thought I would, than a, than a high school football player. And, yeah, but I. But I love basketball. Uh, I played high school basketball. I thought that was my best sport. Uh, but we didn't have uh, baseball in high school. And so those are two sports I played. Okay. Now, if if my memory serves me correctly, when you were in school or when you were younger, and I'm not saying you're old now, but <laughs> when, you, when you were younger, you could stand flat-footed, jump up, and dunk a basketball. Is that story true? Well, I, I needed one step. Okay. What <laughs> uh, once one step I could do it in one step. Yes, that's true. And you're six foot, six one. I'm right about six foot, but I I you know I had a, a strong vertical. I mean I I could I could if I'm doing layups, then I could really get up high and, and put the ball in. But yeah, but for some reason uh, I never could run and, and dunk the way the traditional people dunk. I could never yeah. get the I could never get the lift that I needed. So I said, well, let me try it this way. So I would try I would drive down. Then I would just uh, take take two steps, go up, boom, and do it, do, it, do it that way. So, but going straight up, I was good. But at an yeah. angle, but very good. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the Royals Academy. Um, it, it was a, a great idea that I don't know if they ran out of funding, but they didn't continue it. But there are three major leaguers, Ron Washington, UL Washington, and you that played major league ball. So from a from a production standpoint, the Royals Academy was a great idea, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, David, it was. It, it lasted four years, actually. And uh, in the four years, uh, 14 players played in the major leagues. Mm. And these are and we were all non-drafted players. We all signed out of a tryout camp. And it was a lot. It was a lot of fun to uh, uh, to to see guys make it to the major leagues going through that process. And uh, I think it was back in probably 1970, probably early 70, uh, where Mr. K was really, he had just bought the team and he was trying to figure out different ways to uh, find players. And that's when they came up with this academy idea. And so they held tryout camps all over the United States and they wanted 50 guys that uh, didn't have, uh, didn't necessarily have, have to have a baseball background, but they had to be good athletes and they could bring in people to help them learn the game. So they built a complex uh, in Sarasota, Florida. It was five miles outside of town. And they took us there and everything was self-contained. We had, we had a dormitory, uh, 11 size swimming pool, handball courts. We had 
our own lo- own uh, locker room. We were fully staffed with major league coaches and, and trainers, and and it, it was just and we had our own uh, cafeteria. Miley Marson cafeteria was our cafeteria, and so we just mainly just was housed right there. And we get up in the mornings. Uh, we had to eat breakfast. It was a ten dollar fine if you didn't eat breakfast, and then we had to go to Manatee Junior College till noon, and then we came back, had lunch, and then we hit the field till about five five thirty, and so it was all about learning the fundamentals of the game over and over and over again. And, and really the most famous guy that came down to talk to us was uh, Ted Williams. Mm. And he talked about hitting and they brought in Jim Lemon and, and then they brought in uh, Amos Otis and Cookie Rojas and John Mayberry. And, and really the uh, uh, one of the interesting guys they brought in was Wes Santee, who was the distance runner from KU. And, and his job was to teach us form running and, and things like that. So they, they covered the whole gambit of, of what we needed to learn. So it was, and then we were out in the middle of nowhere and you could only go into town once a week. <laughs> so we, so we had baseball, 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 you know, we played in squad games. Uh, we played local colleges, universities, and, and it was, it was a lot of fun to, uh, to get to really learn how to play the game through fundamentals and, and fundamentals was something that, uh, came easy for me and, and it just made the transition a lot faster. So if you're going to learn to hit, Ted Williams is a pretty good guy to model, isn't he? <laughs> well, I mean, he, he made it real simple. And I, I think that's what I admire about the, uh, the veterans of the sixties and seventies. Uh, I mean, mainly coming out of sixties into the seventies, cause they, they really had a, a simple way of playing mm-hmm. the game. You know, they didn't have uh, free agency. Everything was year to year. Uh, everyone knew the importance of everybody's role on the team, what they had to do. And basically, they, they didn't get into a lot of analytics. They just said, listen, you know, your job is to set them up. My job is to get them in. And they held it. And, 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 and we held each other accountable for that. And, and when I got to the major leagues in Kansas City, uh, the first thing that uh, John Mayberry told me, he said, we don't make excuses. He said, we make mistakes, admit our mistakes, and we get better. And then I then talked to Hal McRae, who I trusted immensely, look for good advice. And he said, well, just remember, we don't use the word tried. You know, it's all about either you do the job or you don't do the job. It's just that simple, no gray area. He said, I don't care if you're in a game. I don't care if the ball hit a hole, if it's hot, if it's wet, if it's cold. If you don't make the play and they ask you what happened, just I just messed it up. And let, let's don't try to don't try to analyze it. Just say I messed it up, and let's 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 get let's get after it the next day. So they that's what I remember most is that they just kept they just made the game so simple, and and they, they just took all the all the uh, things out of the game that you would think would help you in an interview with the writer, sports writer after the game to get you a little sympathy, I guess. But I don't know. But they say, hey, just say you didn't didn't make the play, and let's move on. So and that, that just really helped me tremendously. I want to ask you about being a part of the construction crew and, and I've, I've heard the stories for, for years. How did you get involved in that? Well, you know, I, uh, you know, we played in the minors back in those days. Uh, I think after my double A season, we made $600 a month. And, and so the season's over at the end of August. So now you got to figure out how, how do you get from the end of August to April to spring training again. So we had to find jobs back in those days. So the uh, first year I came out of, a ball. Then I said, well, I, I couldn't find a job. So I drew unemployment for a little bit. And then the next year, I, Mr. K uh, talked to his chauffeur and he said, well, I'm going to come pick you up and, and take you down to the union hall and get you a union card. 
on a laborer's card and we're going to give you a job at the stadium. I said, great, you know. So I actually made more money that winter at working at the stadium than I did in the minor leagues. So, so, uh, but, but that, but that's how it happened. Uh, and it, it really, it was like from the beginning of September in 72. And then I left in April 73 to go to spring training. And then in June 73, I was playing uh, in the stadium, which is sort of a fast transition. Yeah, no kidding. So what was your, what was your role uh, in the construction part? Well, mainly uh, I was carrying stuff to people that really knew what they were doing. That was, that was, was, I think that's, that's a laborer's term, (laughs) but, but you know, they gave me an opportunity to uh, seal floors and then I, and then we reported the columns on the first floor uh, whenever the cement ran over, then I had a machine that I would go column by column with a chisel and smooth it out. So so I thought that was kind of fun uh, working the machine uh, but I, I just think that in the wintertime, you know, when the snow is on the, on, in the upper deck and you're looking down on the field and you, you're working at the stadium, but then in your mind, you're saying, I wonder if I'm ever going to play down there on that field. And, and you, really a few months after I got to spring training, I was, I was standing at shortstop. It was pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. That you rose uh, through the minor leagues very rapidly, obviously. And when you made your debut at the Royals, I, I, I've, I remember this to a certain extent, but I, I saw stories about it as well. You were not initially well received by the fans, yeah, right. even though you're from Kansas City because you replaced Cookie Rojas. How did you win over the fans? You know, when I came up in '73, um, you know, I wasn't really heralded. I wasn't really uh, a star. I wasn't projected to be a star. You know, I came up as a utility player, '73, uh, '74, '75. And, and I played a lot more in 76, but uh, I was playing, I came up a little bit before George. And so I was playing third, short, second as a utility guy. And, and then when, but in the meantime, uh, after the 73 season, I went to Venezuela and played in the winter. And I went back to Venezuela in 74. And then in 76, I went to Puerto Rico. And so that gave me the additional at-bats and games that I needed. And when he retired, uh, it was a, it was it was it was a fun retirement because it was you know it was a passing of the caps and things like that, but then in the fans' minds, uh, I still wasn't a star. I mean, I was been a utility player for three years, and even though I was from here, it you know I just they just didn't have that feel you know and and yes. so my so I struggled uh, early in '77 with the bat and so I got booed a lot. Uh, People would throw coins on the field when I round the first base, coming back to the dugout. Uh, you know, and I kept telling myself, I said, why, why are they so irritated with me? Because I didn't, I didn't, they didn't release him for me to play. He retired. Yeah. And so, so then I uh, kind of thought to myself and I said, you know, there really is no free lunch. So you, you just have to prove to them that you can play. And if you prove them that you can play, then, then you'll win them over. So that, that second half of 77, I really uh, started getting better with the bat. My defense was very good. And, and then when I won my first gold glove after that season, then I think that's when things started to turn a little bit for me. And then after two or three more gold gloves in a row, then I think that that kind of won them over. It made it feel like uh, second base was secure again. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Is, is the When you won your first gold glove, is that when you recognized or you – became confident that you were part of the long-term future of the team? I think so. I, th- I think the second half, uh, I think I ended up hitting 
about 245. I, I got, made a good comeback with the bat, and and the, but the defense was consistent. I think I only made seven errors that year, and 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 I think that the players had a lot of confidence in me. They they knew that I had the ability to do it. Uh, they had a lot of confidence in me. So I think I think that that just gave me that confidence going into the next spring training, and and really didn't have anyone there to challenge me for for that for the second base job. So I really felt like uh, they had enough confidence in me. I know defensively they had tons of confidence in me. It just matter whether they thought I was going to eventually hit or not. You were obviously part of a great run through the late 70s and into 1980 when the Worlds won, won four division titles in five years and reached the first World Series. And people don't remember, it was just the 12th year, 12th year of the franchise. When did you know that this team had that potential to be that good? I think coming out of the 75 season, because uh, uh, we, we had just brought Leonard and just came joined the team, and and then we traded for Larry Gurr and and – and it just seemed like we were just right there. And then when I, I went out in 76, you could tell that it was, it was just different about the team. The guys were uh, winning games and, and you could just see it all kind of coming together. And then when, when we made the playoffs, we lost the, uh, the heartbreaker on Shamless's home runs. But we knew coming into the next year, we, were, we knew how to win. And I think the first time around, I think the Yankees and us, really in 76 was, was a turning point for both teams because the mm-hmm. Yankees prior to that wasn't really that good either. Right. And, right. and, and so uh, I think they picked up Randolph in a trade from Pittsburgh and as a leadoff guy, and, and that kind of turned their team around a little bit too. And then they made, obviously they went heavily into the free agent market and, and that really uh, put them where they needed to be. So I, I think that was, uh, I think that was a time that I really, I really felt like, uh, we had a team that, that were going to be contending for a while because of our pitching and our defense. We had speed and we had turf that nobody else had. And, and they yeah. made us that much better. Uh, when teams came to our, our place to play. So yeah, I think that was when it, when it, when it turned around for me. We talked about the fact that the Royals won four division titles in five years. So did the Yankees. And mm-hmm. you guys lost to them three straight years. How sweet was 1980? Um, everybody remembers Brett's home run off Gossage in game three in Yankee stadium, but just overall, how sweet was it in 1980, not only to make the world series, but to do it at the expense of the Yankees. Well, you know, after losing that tough one in 76, uh, 77 was, was a heartbreaker. I mean, that to me, that was probably, uh, the worst for me as a player, uh, that hmm. year we won 102 games and, and we really felt like we were the best team. We had taken two games in, in Yankee Stadium and all they needed one at home. And we had had the lead in the ninth and they came back and beat us uh, in game five. And I thought that was uh, the most crushing loss of my career because uh, that 78 was a little uneventful. But in 80, uh, we knew we had a real good ball club. We knew we had all the ingredients to, to win it all. We had picked up Willie Akins and he was – uh, a strong bat for us. Uh, Willie Wilson was at the top of his game. George was at the top of his game. Everybody was, everybody was McRae. Everybody was just, just overextending themselves. Uh, and and I know from a pressure standpoint, it was probably the most uh, difficult season for me because uh, I mean, difficult series for me because everywhere you went, you know, you had lost three in a row. Uh, people didn't want to see it again. Uh, the fans were saying, you guys can't let this happen again. We got to beat the Yankees. And 
And, you know, so uh, the guys, for some reason, had a different look. You know, they, 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 the focus was different. Uh, I know me personally, uh, I couldn't sleep that night. Uh, I had my wife take me to the ballpark at seven in the morning. And, and then I got on the training table, slept easily. I probably, probably where I needed to be, uh, because it was just that much pressure. And because you had the pressure that the people have put on you, you had the pressure of the city, you had the pressure yourself and your fans and family and friends. So you had a lot, a lot to deal with in that series based on the fact that you lost three in a row. And, in the clubhouse, it was not that normal, loose guys acting crazy. It was more people sitting in their locker, sort of concentrating a little bit more, focusing a little bit more, and and I think that's really uh, what got us ready for that for that series. And I, I mean, sweeping them three in a row, I don't think that was something we thought would happen. But uh, once we took game one and two, then it was really uh, on us to uh, finish it off in, in, in Yankee Stadium. But, but that was really the most pressure I felt uh, as a player going into that, uh, that 80 series. Okay. Uh, and then after some turbulent years, the Royals became good again in 84. And I think from an outsider's standpoint, the, it was the infusion of the young pitching, Brett Saberhagen, yes. Mark Gubazad, Danny Jackson. What do you remember about the resurgence of the team in 84? I think 84 was uh, – Special because we had a we had a we had veteran players, and and we had a good young crop of young guys coming up to pitch. And the thing about these three guys, Gubazai, Jackson, and Saves, is that from a confidence standpoint, you weren't going to find any better. From a competitive standpoint, you weren't going to find any better. Uh, they they pitched with a lot of passion. They they they, they pitched with a lot of uh, a lot of desire to win um, and. And, and having a veteran team behind them helped because we could play defense and, and we could, we mm-hmm. could hit and, and we did the things that if they made mistakes, we could, we could, we could compensate for those mistakes. And I think that's what made, made us that much better. I was going from, uh, I had come off of, uh, 83 when George got hurt, Dick moved me down in that third spot. So I was, I was coming off a of player of the year that year and, and they left me in the middle of all the, offense and I, I think I hit 17 home runs that year and 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 the pitching was just really uh safe was I mean from a guy that could pinpoint I mean he was he was the best I mean you when Danny pitched you could you could tell you could look at him and see the aggressiveness you could see the the, the confidence and and when, when Doobie pitched the same way you know those those guys really you could just see it on him when Save pitched you couldn't tell Save was more the California, <laughs> California. California surfer guy who, who, who could, who could, who could, who, who was serious, but, but he knew how to uh, lighten up, light it up a little bit when he needed to. And, and he knew how to turn it on when he had to, he was a very good defensive player, uh, good athlete to, you know, fill this position. I mean, he was just so much fun to play behind. And uh, so I think those guys really uh, made a huge difference in our team that year. And then in 85, you guys, went down 0-2 twice <laughs> yeah. in seven-game series and came back and won. That had never been done in the World Series to lose the first two at home and win it. But you didn't you, – you did that against Toronto. Now, the first two were in Toronto in the, in the uh, championship series. But to fall down – were you guys just like, okay, we're going to give them a little bit of a head start and then come back and, <laughs> and catch them? No. 
Now, David, I think I think we were just so elated that it was a seven game series, not a five game <laughs> series. But but uh, but I think uh, they, they weren't games where we got really blown out. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I think I think it was more uh, of just getting getting some momentum. Uh, yeah, I think when we came home and and George hit the three home runs and. And I, this gave us momentum, and I think I think once you uh, you get down, then you can't say we got two more, we got three more. You only got one more. So every so everything that you have is packed into that one game, and you don't want to leave anything on the field for that one game. And and then after we uh, tied, we actually were down three to one at one point in both of those series. So right. so when George uh, got us going in the right direction. We knew that if we could tie the series up at three three, then then we'd have a momentum swing to us at that point, because we knew we were going to face Dave Steve in Game Seven. We knew we were going to face John Tudor in Game Seven, yeah. and so, and so we felt like uh, that momentum might be enough to to get us over the hump. So after we came back and and tied it up against the Blue Jays, and then we went into uh, Toronto with Steve on the mound and. Uh, it was a nip and tuck game, and then when Sunberg hit the triple uh, off the wall that, and, and, and scored runs for us, and I think we, I think we might have eventually got up to six to two in that game. Then we really felt like it was going to be our game at that point, and no, no different than that World Series. Once we tied it up at three, then the players were chanting uh, John Tudor's name after the game in the clubhouse. So you, you know, that was a, it was a very very emotional uh, win in Game Six. So guys were really fired up and. And when we came out and, and after Daryl Molly hit the home run, it just seemed like it was just downhill for the uh, for the Cardinals at that point. And so it was just, it was just uh, I think it was just really just when you compile it all here, we are backs against the wall. Let's put it all in with this one game and then this one game and this one game. And, yeah. And, and everybody pulled together and, and we found ourselves uh, a world champion. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty sweet, sweet. I want to ask you for us. I Two things specifically about 85. First of all, we know that George Order was out. Yes. But he was retired on the next play on a fielder's choice that where, and I don't remember who was batting, but but that that runner wouldn't have been out at first. So it was really a a non-factor in that inning. Yeah, well, what happened, uh, uh, David, uh, was after he was called safe, then there was a pop-up to first base that Jack Clark didn't catch. Right. And, and then Balboni on the next pitch got a base hit the left. And then we were trying to advance the runners uh, by bunting, and then order was forced at third. That's right. Okay. Uh, on a bad bunt. And then it sort of went, went from there. But then there was a pass ball by Porter, which got him to second and third. And there was a walk, and then order got the base hit. So it was really a self-destructing moment for the Cardinals. I mean, yeah. even though even though they got the we got the call at first, uh, they still had an opportunity to get out of that get out of that uh, that inning. Okay, but but you know that's what I love about baseball. I mean, I love the instant calls by the umpires. I love the emotions from the managers and the coaches. And to me, that's what this game of baseball is about. I mean, that's yeah. how you you keep it alive in the fans' minds. I think once you have all the replays and you got to have work stoppages and managers don't rush to feel like they used to because they got to wait and see if it's worth going out. It's, so all that, all that instantaneous stuff that, uh, 
that you as a good fan, as a fan, you'd like to see, you don't get yeah. to see because they've turned it into a different game. And and I think the uh the baseball purists would love to see the umpires make those calls. I think the umpires make more good calls than bad calls. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's just that uh everybody's in this mode where we gotta get it absolutely right. And and sometimes that is not what baseball is all about. <laughs> I think baseball is designed to go the other way. I think you can you can question the uh the home runs, but but I think you know, all the plays at first and second and all the tag plays. I, I think that's where the emotion of the game is. That's what makes the game emotional. And I yeah. think that's, what, that's what brings fans into it like that. And that's what creates these rivalries that, that baseball can, can create. And I, that's what I miss about the game today. Well, one of my best friends is a Cardinals fan, and every once in a while he'll bring that up, and, I'll, and I will remind him that George Order didn't score. You know, <laughs> he didn't score in that inning. You guys gave it away. It was – now, the other thing I want to ask you about 1985 is you became the first second baseman to hit cleanup in a World Series game since some guy named Jackie Robinson. That's some, <laughs> that's some rarefied air. How does that make you feel? Well, you know, David, that was a, a, an interesting uh, build up to that. Uh, Dick, I came in and Dick Houser said, I, you need to bat fourth for me in a World Series. I thought he was nuts. You know, I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, <laughs> I said, I said all these guys we got, you want me to bat fourth? I did. And then I realized that, uh, you know, we, we couldn't use the DH that year. And, and then uh, I went to George, and I wanted, I wanted George to hit fourth because I felt if I hit third, he hit fourth because I hit 22 home runs that year. And, and, and then I figured they, if George is behind me, then Whitey would pitch to me because he wouldn't want George to beat him. But if George is ahead of me, then he would walk George to pitch to me. But George didn't want to move. And so I told Dick, I said, well, go ahead and put me here. Cause if I, if I do well, they're right about it. If I don't, I should have been there in the first place. So, <laughs> so, so that's how I, that's how it happened. But uh, I did, I did find out later that uh, Jackie Robinson was the only uh, other second baseman to bat fourth in all seven games of the world series. So that was, that was, that gave me a great feeling right there. Yeah, um, for sure. Now you and I've talked about this many, many times. you I believe you should be in the hall of fame. Not just the Royals Hall of Fame, but the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Besides solid statistics that match up well, I don't know if you remember one time I came into the clubhouse and I had Mazeroski's statistics yes, and yours, yes. and I didn't have names. And I said, what are, what, what are the similarities? And, and you said, they're basically the same. And I said, yeah, one's yours, one's Bill Mazeroski's, and he's in the Hall of Fame. But you yeah. also won eight gold gloves, most of any second baseman not in the Hall of Fame, tied for fifth most at any position. So if you were the person nominating Frank White for the Hall of Fame, what would you say? Well, looking at Bill Mazeroski, I would say he should be there. Um, I think that uh, our overall batting averages was probably one point difference. I think he was yeah. like 256, I was 255. Uh, mine might be the lowest of all the guys in there, maybe at that, at that number. But, but I think that uh, when you look at uh, the body of work, uh, you look at uh, the different things that I've, I was able to do for our team and the winning that we went through. And and then you look at our basic numbers, you know, Maserati hit the key home run in the uh, in the series. Uh, I hit the key home run in game three and and also hit a key home run in, uh, in game three of the uh, of the 80 playoffs against the Yankees. So I think I think. I really think that I made more adjustments for my team uh, to be successful than he did for his team to be successful. And, and I think that from a consistency standpoint, uh, going out every day, playing, I put in the games, I put in the time 
And and I, I think I, I think I should be there. Uh, but I think that uh, getting the uh, Veterans Committee to look at it uh, the right way it, it has been difficult. Um, sometimes when you have ex-players uh, doing the judging, sometimes the, the, the more they're away from the game, the better they were. And so, 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 so I think, and I think what hurts baseball a lot of times is there's no video uh, for a lot of these young writers to see and everything's based on different numbers. Now that what we had to deal with, we just dealt with uh, on base percentage, uh, uh, RBI home runs and batting average for now they're dealing with uh, a ton of other numbers that, uh, yeah. that would be foreign to us. But so I think, I think that would be the, the thing that would have to happen is that your veteran guys and your veteran writers that are still around that saw me play uh, would have to push it. And, and it really helps too, if your team pushed it. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of where it starts. If the Rawls got behind it and said, Hey, this guy really needs to be in the hall of fame. Then I think it would happen. Uh, right now, I think uh, myself and probably Otis Taylor or two guys that probably should be in the hall of fame that aren't in the hall of fame. Yeah. So, so I think that, you take into consideration the size ballpark you played in. If I could have played in Detroit or uh, Comiskey Park or, or Wrigley Field or some of those smaller ballparks, uh, even Boston, I would have uh, been a much more uh, better offensive player. Yeah, and, and I don't think enough credit is is given to um, is given to defense. I, I recently did a podcast with Bill James. And he said he got into statistics when he was a kid and uh, the Dodgers, this was in the sixties, the Dodgers had um, a, a first baseman named Wes Parker. And somebody yeah. said he shouldn't be in the lineup. His defense is good enough. He saves basically a run per game, mm-hmm. but you know, he's not a good enough hitter. And his, he wrote to the sporting news. He wrote like an eight page letter. He said to the sporting news, if you add a run per game to his batting average, he's a four thirty hitter. Why would you want to take him out? I don't think enough credit is given to defense and the eight gold gloves, I think is reason enough, even if you couldn't hit at all, which obviously you could, I think that's reason enough to have you in there. I'm going to keep championing that until I'm gone. So. Well, uh, I, I, really, I really appreciate it, Dave. I, I think that you look at the, uh, the consecutive gold gloves uh, who won the, uh, that was just myself and, and Whitaker. Really, I won six in a row. I think Lou won three, and then I won uh, two more, one more, two more. And, and really, the ninth one I should have had. Uh, I, I played 150 games and only made four errors. And, you know, they was amazing about that year was I made four, th- I made four errors that year, and they were all four throwing errors to four different first basemen. So I went the whole season and never missed a ball. And, yeah. and, that, and that I don't think has ever happened. Uh, but – but I think it's just like I say, it's just I think it's all about your team getting behind you. And uh, and, and 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 when David Glass was there, he could have uh, easily uh, pushed it a little bit. But for some reason, getting them to do that has been very hard. And yeah, uh, but I really do appreciate the fact that I grew up here and and I think it's given me a real sense of how to deal with it because people know who I am. They know what I've done and. And a lot of them got a chance to see me play. And if I'd have lived, if I'd have played here and lived in Montana, then I wouldn't, have, I would have a different feeling, I think. But uh, I do, I do think that I should be there. Uh, but it's, it's how do you bridge that, that connection? They'll say, uh, you should, I mean, I think I was every bit as good as Alan Trammell or 
or any, any some of the other guys that have been that are in there. But uh, you know, it's just a matter of uh, getting the right people to, to champion you at, at yeah. the right time. Yeah, I, I know things didn't end well with with the your last employment with the Royals. And I don't want to get into that. But what does it mean to you to have your number, one of three numbers, one of two players, to have numbers retired by the Royals? You know, I don't know if I got the right word to, to say it, but to be a guy who didn't play high school ball or college ball, just played 30 games in the summer, uh, to try out for the team, uh, for the academy, and then also to try out to make one of the minor league teams. So it was a constant tryout. and. And I think for me to go from that to 18 years in the major leagues in my hometown, uh, to be able to be a part of so many winning seasons and to be a world's champion, uh, I just I'm, I'm floored, really. Uh, when when Dan Glass called me and, and said they want to put a statue up at the stadium, I didn't know what to say. I mean, I always thought you had to be dead before you have a, a statue anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I said it might be too much to live up to. Uh, but, but I think that, uh, I guess it kind of told me I come full circle and, and I, and I, and I really, uh, have accomplished something that, uh, that, that, that I never, 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 I mean, to me to play two years in the major league, I had, I would have said no way in the world. I mean, to even make the major leagues, I would have probably said no way in the world because you don't know what it takes to get there. You just get there and then you, and when I got there as a shortstop, uh, I looked around and I saw Cookie was over than Freddie, and I said, "Well, I better go learn how to play second base." And so it wasn't any, it wasn't the coach telling me I need to play second base, but I played for a, a guy, A ball and AAA. Harry Momberg was my manager, and Harry said, "Well, you know, I think you'd be a very good major league shortstop, but I think you'd be a great major league second baseman." And and so that's when I went to winter ball and I started playing second base. All right. I, I don't want to talk politics with you, but I do want to ask you why you decided to pursue a career in politics. Because I, I really I really thought and think uh, that I, I could make a difference. And I and I think I am making a difference. Uh, I think once 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 I got into this uh, role, uh, I think the biggest thing that hurt me hurt me most was the name recognition when it applied to other elected officials. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the voters know and, and the people that know me know, but the elected officials, when people want to run against you and you got name recognition, that's something that is kind of hard to deal with. And so therefore you have these attacks on your character. And, and I, uh, I told my wife, I said, I went 31 years in baseball and never had a complaint about anything. And I, and I put the political hat on and, and, and the star and, and other elected officials, uh, prior things that happened before I got here. It was all of a sudden I was, I was a corrupt guy. And I said, well, I, I said, well, these are the guys, some of these guys covered me as a player and now they're calling me corrupt. But, but really, I really did it because uh, growing up on the East side of Kansas city, you, you have a lot of situations that you say, why can't we get this? Why can't we have this? And, and so I said, you know, it was an open seat. Um, uh, I was encouraged to run for it. And, and for the, it was on the legislature at that time. And, and then, then I could see how these things work. And I, and I, so it was a matter of just uh, making that transition from thinking as a ball player to thinking as a, as a, as a citizen trying to help other citizens. And, and I really, uh, my main goal was to see how I can improve the quality of life of the people uh, 
in, in Jackson County. And, and that, that, that's still my goal. And, and we're still working hard in that direction. Um, you know, we've been able to, like next year, we'll be starting at $15 an hour. And our FMLA has gone from six paid weeks to 12 paid weeks. Uh, so everything that we do is really designed to improve the quality of life and be, be, and be at the forefront uh, of some of these changes. And, and we're the first one to go to $15 an hour. And so we encourage other, other businesses to do it. I see Blue Springs is doing it next year. Truman Medical Center was a little bit before us. And, and just trying to do things that uh, are progressive and, and trying to show people that the county is not as, as some of the oldness about the county is, is what people expected to see. But I wanted to uh, bring the county to another level. And I think being a ball player and from a PR standpoint uh, has, has helped a lot, um, mm-hmm. I think, because you, you kind of because. The, the camera doesn't bother you. Being in crowds don't bother you. Being around yeah. people don't bother you. And uh, and I think I think that's been the best part for me is just uh, still being able to rub elbows with folks and and answer the tough questions that they ask you. But but it just goes back to uh, helping people, and and that's that's the only reason I'm doing it right now is because uh, I think I can make a difference. I think I have made a difference, and. Now, just deciding whether you're going to do it again in 2022. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do enjoy it, though, very much. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, you've, you've done so much for this community. It, if you were doing something to help people, but you weren't enjoying it, I might say, hey, you've given enough, Frank. It, just relax <laughs> a little bit. So I'm glad to hear that you, that you enjoy it. I like to wrap up the, the podcast interviews with two things. One, talk about your family. Well, my family, uh, how, 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 how deep you want me to go? Uh, as my, deep as uh, you want to go. You know, my kids are that, or go back I know, I know, <laughs> I know that you have grandkids and a great grandchild now. Yes, I understand. Yes, yes, so yes, go I, ahead and go as deep as you want. Well, you know, it, it really starts with my mom and dad and, uh, and they, they're the ones who really, uh, were the driver in, in everything that I did. And, you know, they were very supportive and, and, and I think without, uh, without their leadership uh, in, in my development, I think I would have bombed out a long time ago. And my dad, uh, you know, when I was 12, taught me a great lesson. Uh, he, he took me off a team after the third game where I wasn't playing. And, and then when I got home, he asked me, I asked him, why did he take me off the team? And he said, because he said, do you understand the game? I said, yes. He said, do you have a passion for the game? I said, yes. You know, being 12, you just don't know what he's asking you. And yeah. He's, and he said, well, how can you have a passion for the game and love the game if you don't play? And I didn't have an answer for him. And so he took me and put me on the worst team. And I played every day. And that's when I really learned that I, I really did like baseball. Uh, my mom, she'd always say that you're going to have a lot of tough decisions to make uh, in your life. Uh I, if you truly trust your parents and love your parents, then always say before you make a tough decision, ask yourself, what would my folks think? Yeah. And, and that's really been a guide to a lot of decisions that I make. Uh, uh, my kids, I'm really excited about them. I have uh, two girls, two boys, biological. I have four stepsons. And my oldest son's a KU grad. My, and my uh, oldest daughter, Rockers College. And, my two youngest are TCU grads and my biological kids never did. They didn't want the traditional college. So they want, so one went to Batter, Batter College, uh, Heritage College, Merrimack College. And so they, so, so they all educated. I'm four. 
<laughs> but everybody, everybody's doing well. Uh, we have 12 grandkids and one great granddaughter and uh, we're busy, <laughs> but I'm sure. it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think that uh, the experiences that I've been able to uh, have over the years, I never thought my life would be like this. I never thought my life would be this good. I mean, I, I never really thought that I could do a lot of the things that I've done uh, without a higher education or, uh, or, or some special skill. Uh, it, it just, for me, it's all been, it's been about uh, not being afraid to try. And then once you are here, it's about being able to put together a team that can get things done. And, and that's where I, I always go back to my baseball uh, career when things are tough. And I think about uh, the Yankees and I think about all those tough series we used to have to play. Yeah. You get yourself in the right mind mindset to, uh, and, and you always try to look for uh, opportunity in the middle of chaos at the same time. Uh, so, it, so I, I just, I'm really proud of me. I'm really proud of uh, my ability to not be afraid to try things. And, and then the baseball stuff with the Monarchs, uh, it's just a great opportunity for me to not think about uh, politics. Uh, I can go over there and, and I can just react to uh, what I see. I can work with the infielders. I can answer questions in the game. I can help with the base running. But I don't have to get into player acquisitions and contracts and, and yeah. things like that, which will be the emotional things that you do in, in the game. So I truly uh, appreciate the fact that they let me do it. And, uh, and it's just been, like I say, 10 years. and. And I don't think anybody could uh, have a better life uh, than I have at, with the experiences that I've had. And, and my kids are, uh, are all excited. And my wife, uh, Teresa, she is just uh, a great woman. Uh, she's been very supportive. She, she's always encouraging me to do more. And where a lot of people say, why are you doing this? <laughs> uh, but I think that we'll have a lot of time in our life where we can sit down and we can uh, – uh, look back and and, and, and and say, where did you make a difference? And, and like I say, a lot of it is, uh, is, is just really your ability to want it, want it, want to go out there and try it. And, and, yeah. uh, and, and, that, and, and, and I've always been uh, a very competitive guy and probably didn't show a lot on the field, but uh, because I went 18 years, they never got kicked out of the game. So, so people will say, well, you, you weren't emotional enough. You didn't, you didn't really care enough. And I, and I, and I, my, my philosophy was, and I would tell all my managers, I said, I want to play. I don't want to sit in the clubhouse for five innings, get kicked out of a ball game. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to do enough to let you know that I don't agree with the umpire, but if I don't see you coming, then I'm going to walk away. And I did that for 18 years. And, and I, and I think that, uh, I, I realized my value to the team. I realized my, uh, my value to me because I didn't want to be sitting in the clubhouse uh, while the guys were uh, playing the game because I really felt like it was my position and I was the best one for it. And, yeah. and my, and my, uh, my backup guys, they, they would be mad at me because they said, <laughs> when are you going to let me play? <laughs> so, but I, I just love to play and, and manager will give you, they say, you got to get the day off tomorrow then I would never accept that day off until the first pitch of the game uh, because things happen. Uh, yeah. So I was always ready to play. And then the fifth inning, I was looking for ways, how can I get in this game? So, yeah. so it just, I just love being on the field. I just love playing. I mean, I just thought that uh, 
the guys that we had, they were so much fun to play with uh, that I wanted to be out there on the field with them. All right. I wrap up with this question. You kind of, kind of just answered it. Um, but you've talked about so many things you've done. You've talked about the great life that you've left. You've lived. I always ask this as my last question. What's your legacy? Oh boy. I saw that question when you sent it to me and I, and I, um, kicked it around a hundred times, a hundred different ways. Uh, I, uh, God, I tell you, I, I just think that I, uh, was a guy who just wasn't afraid to take a chance. Uh, and a guy who was always looking for an opportunity and when that opportunity presented itself, uh, uh, put hard work with it which created success on the other end. But a guy who cared, a guy who took his job seriously and, and loved it. And I guess, I guess, I guess that would, that would probably be about it. Uh, yeah. You know. That's great. A guy who cared. That's a good way to be, good mm -hmm. way to be known. Well, Frank, I always enjoy chatting with you. It's been a little while because of your busy schedule and all with the, being the Jackson County executive, but it's always good to catch up with you. And I thank you very much for carving out some time for us today. Well, anytime, Dave. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.